Today we're sharing a sermon preached by Bishop Waldo at Trinity Cathedral's Lenten series on this Wednesday in Holy Week. I hope you enjoy this message on the power of love, forgiveness, and reconciliation on today's episode of Make, Equip, and Send, the stories that shape EDUSC. Some 15 years or so ago, elected diocesan representatives and diocesan staff from across the state of Minnesota met for an annual retreat. It was a large group. As an icebreaker, our facilitators had planned a birth order exercise. All firstborns move over to this side of the room, they began, and to nearly everyone's surprise, fully half the group moved to occupy that row of tables. Says something about who runs for office in the diocese, and, uh, I guess, I don't know. But they then split the rest of us up into four groups. Only children at one table, youngest at another, middle children at the third, and for the fourth table, they wanted second children from families of four or more children. Since I am the second of six, that's where I went. Then they gave us two questions for table discussions. What did you like least about your birth order? And what did you like most about it? Now, eldest siblings spoke especially about their resentments at how their younger siblings seemed to get away with more than they ever dreamed about doing and that their parents seemed to be harder on them. But they loved the authority that being the eldest gave them. Only children named how much they missed having siblings to play with and keep them company, to confide in. Oh, I always wanted a brother, I always wanted a sister. They also really liked how they tended to command their parents' attention and affection. Some said they really loved being spoiled. Some of the youngest children expressed dismay about how little attention their parents had given them, as if some of the energy and commitment to parenting had waned with each child. But many of them also said they felt a freedom in being the youngest, and they really liked being able to stay below the radar. Now, more than a few of the middles expressed some confusion about just what they felt negative about and what they felt positive about. Lots of mixtures. As second children in larger families, those of us at my table felt stymied by the first question. 
we really couldn't think of anything affectingly negative about our position in the families. I said I thought it was the best seat in the house. Furthermore, we kind of sheepishly admitted how much we really liked not having all the responsibility our elder siblings had and the authority that we could wield over multiple younger siblings. Now, I'm sure there must be more than a few eldest in larger families in the room right now who have thoughts like, aha, I thought so. <laughs> or, no wonder my next sibling frustrated me so often. None of the observations we made that day are even close to definitive, of course. And the effect of our, our, the effect of our birth order had on, on us as many dimensions and contexts in different families. But it's possible that the trends we named are at least recognizable. The parable of the prodigal son has something to do with sibling relationships, at least. But it's been on my heart throughout Lent this year, beginning while on my annual Ash Wednesday retreat at the Society of St. John the Evangelist Monastery in Cambridge, Mass. It is a lost and found story that follows on the heels of two other such parables in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Of the two sons in the parable of the prodigal son, I have tended throughout my life to identify primarily with the younger. There are a lot of reasons for that, such as the time when I was far away and not living according to my father's standards, a dilemma in which I had placed, I had placed my folks that made him feel the need to say something I've carried with me my whole life. <clears throat> Andrew, he said, I like to maintain my love and my scruples, but if one of them has to go, let it be my scruples. The bookend to that moment happened several years later when I called my father to tell him I had returned to and embraced Christian faith and shared tears of joy with him. But the elder son in this parable was the one who really drew me into Lenten reflection about my own connections to him. I had entered my monastery retreat with a heart in sackcloth and ashes, aware of so many brothers and sisters in Christ across this country who do not merely hate each other, 
they view each other with utter contempt. Much as the elder son seems to feel about his prodigal brother. For us, taking in each day's news is a tangible experience of the embitteredness and contempt prevailing in today's world. I entered my retreat wondering, how, Lord, can we break these chains of alienation? How can I break the chains of, of an alienation within my own heart that enslave us in our society. In our parable, the elder brother hears his father has killed the fatted calf to celebrate his younger wayward brother's return. And he is resentful. He feels only contempt for his brother. Even when his father surrounds his embittered elder son with genuine love and gratitude for him, no evidence in scripture tells us the elder son actually accepts that love. In the end, the parable teaches us that when we are wayward, like a younger son, or embittered like the elder son, we lose our way to God and our way to one another. In either way, we squander, miss, or dismiss the abundant love of God. Henry Nowen, who, as we know, has written perhaps the most poignant and probing book on this parable, writes of the younger prodigal son that the farther I run away from the place where God dwells, the less I am able to hear the voice that calls me beloved. And the less I hear that voice, the more entangled I become in the manipulations and power games of the world. By the end of the parable, the embittered, contemptuous elder son has gone equally far from the place where God dwells. And our contempt for others over whom we strive to win, to defeat, desiring above all for them to just go away, we embrace and become enslaved, enslaved by the manipulations and power games of the world. 
I remember an alcoholic intervention in which I participated many years ago. It centered on one of my parishioners who was generally respected, but in his addiction had become reactive, resentful, and hypercritical of other people, not just of family members who questioned his drinking, but also of other people's opinions, attitudes, and even what they wore to church. He had embraced lies as a way of life, not just his own lies, but any lie that might represent a blessing on his anger, his prejudices, general worldview, and especially his drinking. His wife deeply loved him, but had reached the end of her rope. When my arrival at his home for a pastoral visit turned into gathering of his children, his siblings, a couple of close friends, a facilitator, and even his aged mother. His face first went ashen with fear and then red with anger. His wife's bags packed by the door with a plane ticket on top of them and the determined look on her face signaled to him that he did not have much choice in that moment. It would be too much to suggest that the elder son in Jesus' parable was subject to addiction. It might not be too much to say that he had so embraced <laughs> a sense of his own righteousness and his position as the good son, that he had constructed a narrative with no room in it for a younger brother who had gone bad. The story is clear that his hardened heart had blinded him and constructed a wall between the false narrative about himself and the abundant love of his father. It would not be too much to suggest that many in our society have become addicted to the embitterments and aggressions of narratives that make us reactive, resentful, and hypercritical of other people, of races, religions, nationalities, sexual orientations, or, or political allegiances, of whole classes of other people. What happened over the course of that intervention so many years ago was a learning moment for all of us. One by one, 
beginning with the man's children. Specific stories of how his drinking had harmed their relationships spilled out. In firm, loving tones and many tears. Every excuse he offered was met with another story and more love. His false narrative about himself faded with every instance of hard truth offered in love. When his mother, quietly weeping, offered her true and painful narrative, he collapsed in sobs of penitence, grief, relief, and gratitude. The lying was finally over. And the man has remained sober to this day. We forget that God has already intervened in human history. On our behalf, that God loves us, that God loves you so much that He gave His only Son so that we would stop deceiving ourselves with false narratives. That we would turn from our spiritually wanton ways, choosing ever the world over God's love, so that we would, like the prodigal younger son, return God's embrace of love and truly love our neighbor as ourself, whoever they are, wherever they come from. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Spirit be upon you and remain with you forever.